This episode is brought to you by Left of Boom. We empower leaders to respond to crisis proactively and with confidence. G'day ladies and gentlemen. In episode four of series two of Crisis Talks, I sit down and talk with the Victorian Inspector General for Emergency Management, Tony Pearce. Tony Pearce has worked in the emergency services industry for approximately 40 years with roles in the Air Force, Ambulance Victoria, the Director General of Emergency Management Australia, and more recently as the Inspector General for Emergency Management in Victoria. As a part of this role, he manages extensive debriefs across the community or inquiries across the communities in order to help improve and strengthen Victoria's emergency management arrangements. As we move from the response phase of COVID into our recovery, it's important that we pick up some of the lessons that we have learned throughout this difficult time. Tony shares with us some of his experiences in managing inquiries and shares some of the important considerations when conducting debriefs that we can apply in our own organisations in response to COVID. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome again to my podcast, Crisis Talks. Today, we've got Tony Pierce, who's the Inspector General for Emergency Management for Victoria, who's going to talk to us a bit today about lessons learned and how we go about debriefing, particularly when we're dealing with major incidents and major crises and the after effects. Um, given the timing of the, the COVID environment and what we're moving from a transition back into normalcy, I think it's really important that we sort of start to capture those lessons that we have learned and position us for the new normal. Tony Pierce, welcome along today to Crisis Talks. Yeah, good afternoon, Graham. My pleasure. Tony, do you want to give us a bit more of an overview of what your role entails as the Inspector General for Emergency Management? Yeah, certainly. Um, I guess you could say that we're effectively um, a product of the 2009 Victorian Bushfire Royal Commission and then the subsequent flood review conducted by Neil Cromery, the former Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police, where both of those um, both of those forums identified that there was a need for the state to have, um, I guess you'd say, um, a system level assurance capacity over our emergency management system, and something that we that we certainly didn't have prior to that time. As a result of that, the the government of the day went through a white paper process and identified um, the position of Inspector General for Emergency Management. And as a result of that, my office uh, my office came to be. Now, obviously, with the, the wheels of government moving slowly, it was uh, it was a couple of years before we finally got the office established, and the legislation kicked in on the first of June, uh, first of July, two thousand and fourteen. Really, I've got uh, probably three primary functions. Um, one of them is to conduct evaluations and reviews and inquiries into into uh, major events at the request of government, which is obviously what we're doing at the moment with the bushfire inquiry. But we also have a legislative obligation to conduct planned reviews, um, a number of which we do each year. Um, and they the need for those is identified with the sector and with community for issues that we think um, if we were to invest time and effort into them, we would get a better community safety outcome. So we conduct those in a planned sense. Um, as I said, we also have then the requests from government where we're tasked with conducting something such as this, this much larger inquiry at the moment. Second function um, is monitoring both uh, implementation monitoring and performance monitoring. 
the implementation monitoring in effect is um, any recommendations accepted by government from any level of inquiry, whether they be mine, whether they be from a Royal Commission or a parliamentary inquiry, for example, once those recommendations have been accepted, then the Inspector General is tasked with monitoring the implementation of them through to acquittal and reporting annually. Some of those uh, monitoring reports are tabled in Parliament, others are directly to ministers, but um, on all occasions, if a recommendation has been made, then my office then monitors the implementation of those through to acquittal. Um, the performance monitoring is uh, specific to two areas at the moment. Um, in legislation, we have a, a role in monitoring the non-financial performance of the Emergency Services Telecommunications Authority, so the call-taking dispatch entity that looks after all of our emergency services in Victoria and monitor their performance against agreed performance standards. So that's a, that's a very clear and rigorous performance monitoring uh, process. We also investigate um, any issues where ESTA is implicated uh, or ESTA's functions are implicated in an adverse, uh, an adverse outcome for communities. So um, if something that goes wrong in a response, for example, we will investigate ESTA's performance in, in that chain of events. Um, and we also have responsibility for uh, monitoring the performance of the Safer Together um, program that's managed or that's uh, instigated by the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning, which is a, a land management hazard reduction um, process for bushfires and also for investigating specifically any breaches of any planned burns that occur. Um, so that's pretty well, Grant, the three functions we have and that's where we came from. So where do you think we go wrong from learning any lessons from crises then, Tony? Um, I think... If I, you know, without obviously without blowing our trumpet and because the legislation tells us what we do, so therefore we, we deliver on that. I think um, at a state level now, um, we tend not to have too many issues with regard to appropriately, um, firstly, identifying lessons and then putting actions in place that um, allow us to improve our activities and therefore we learn from them. So I guess for Victoria at the state level, we're probably far better placed than we've ever been before in, in actually learning truly learning rather than just identifying. And similarly, Queensland, who implemented um, an IGEM office uh, very similar to ours, not quite the same, but very similar based on our on our uh, functions, um, they are in a similar sort of place. But nationally, if you look at all jurisdictions, um, that's not necessarily the case everywhere else. And um, as was with us prior to Black Saturday, I think it's fair to say that there were many inquiries and many reviews conducted into many events and lots of things were identified and lots of statements and recommendations were made. But there was no guarantee that those things were ever actually implemented. And interestingly, even now, when we look back, um, I'm confident enough to look back as far as 2009 and the Royal Commission and say that with hand on heart, I can give government a pretty fair assessment of, of what we've implemented or what the state has implemented versus what it's forgotten or dropped away, uh, allowed to drop away. But prior to that, I, I would not be, be able to give any sort of undertaking uh, to that. And I have been asked whether we can do it. Um, and the reality is it's just too complicated to try and work your way down all of the boroughs to find out where all of those recommendations went. So from that context, from a state level, I think we're in pretty good shape. Agency perspective, um, I think, again, because of the, the lessons focus that we have in the state now, then, again, within government agencies, we do it a hell of a lot better than we've ever done it before. And, and a lot of our work, obviously, is actually using um, much of the information and the data that agencies actually come up with themselves as they go through their own learning processes 
and their debrief processes after events. So we have access to that and that also allows me, I guess, to, to make an assessment really of, of their level of performance and how well they're travelling as well. Once you get down to other organisations that are outside of government where maybe it's not a, um, a strategic or a policy objective to um, identify lessons and so on and it's really up to the individual organisations, I think that then varies to some extent. Now, some people might say, well, that's really not an issue because um, they're not government agencies, therefore they don't fall under your purview, so it really doesn't matter whether some are good and some are bad. But the reality is um, you and others, I'm sure, have heard the shared responsibility phraseology before that's been um, bouncing around in this state for quite some time. And if we've learnt nothing else since Black Saturday, we've certainly learnt that um, responding to these sorts of events and then trying to identify ways in which we can do things better is actually indeed a shared responsibility. And there is an obligation on non-government organisations and there is an obligation on the community itself to be able to, to contribute to that in a meaningful way. So I would say that um, if we have a gap at the moment, um, it's not a gap that is intentional because people are divisive or otherwise, it's just a gap outside of the, the more structured frameworks that exist within government to those within the, the private sector and corporate entities that maybe do things slightly differently and also, of course, at times for very, very different reasons. You mentioned about the sort of state organisations and, and obviously then the, the relationships that they hold um, both internally and then also potentially externally. Um, the government certainly, the government of the day um, at the moment certainly copped a lot of criticism throughout the fire response uh, about about their role that they were performing. I, I'd argue that that was um, that 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 criticism was um, was in some cases ill-founded, but in other ways it was based on what people were seeing. You've come from the environment previously with as a, in Emergency Management Australia where you were a lot more active in that sort of role. It seemed like EMA back then was a lot more active in responding to a lot of these large-scale events. And given we had you know, fires which were impacting multiple states, multiple jurisdictions, are we missing that capability across those states to really coordinate at a, at a federal level? Um. I don't know that we're missing. I don't know that we're missing it. We we may be at the moment not capitalising and benefiting off what is there as well as we possibly could do. Um, so you go back to to my days at EMA, and for those who who don't know me, um, I was the Director General of Emergency Management Australia, and and the primary function of that role was to coordinate the Australian government response to. Um, support states and territories in emergencies, but also coordinating responses to overseas emergencies such as tsunamis and earthquakes and those sorts of things. Um, and there was a time, I guess, um, early or sorry, early to mid two thousands, where the Australian government was was very heavily invested and very heavily engaged in um, providing a, a huge amount of support to to jurisdictions and to overseas entities as well. And to some extent, I think that has um, that has dropped off. I mean, there's there's one of the, I guess if you look from a preparedness perspective, one of the major capacities that the, the Commonwealth had was the old Australian Emergency Management Institute up at Mount Macedon that used to be a, was, a, was an element of Emergency Management Australia and um, was renowned across the country and internationally as being uh, almost a centre of excellence for emergency management, disaster management, education. Um, and for, for various reasons, that um, that centre um, ultimately um, was closed down by the Commonwealth and the physical facility has been has actually been purchased by Victoria. So Emergency Management Victoria runs it now. But obviously its ability to um, provide a national coordinated education program and preparedness program in that 
perspective is somewhat limited being being driven by and run by Victoria. So that sort of capacity has dropped off. Um, a lot of the functions, of course, went out to the Australian Institute of Disaster Reduction and um, and other areas uh, who now perform some of those functions. And, and I would say they perform them effectively. But the bit that's still missing is that ability to, to actually bring people together and have them in a place where they can see each other, hear each other and engage with each other and react to what's going on around them. Um, we don't we don't have that capacity any longer, so I guess that's that's somewhat fallen by the wayside. Um, the other thing, from a coordination perspective, of course, is that um, uh, not everybody really understands how um, how the Australian government works in with jurisdictions when it's actually supporting them. And and I think one of the things I've got really quite and you've got to be obviously you've got to be careful with your position of the day and what you do and what you don't do any longer. But if there's anything I would love to have done whilst the Prime Minister was uh, was really copping a bit of a hiding in some regards about what the Commonwealth was and wasn't doing, was to be able to jump in and speak on his behalf because I think, unfortunately, um, he, was, he, was making, he was saying, you know, at, at the end of the day, ultimately, it is at the request of the jurisdictions that the Commonwealth gets engaged in these events. Um, however, that's that's a few very short words that don't really give you any sort of context or understanding as to what that really means. Um, and of course, the pressure for the government of the day was to react, react, react. Um, and for him to be stating the fact, but without the community having a real understanding of in what context that statement was being made, I think didn't do him a great service. And, and he suffered as a result of that. And the Australian government, um, appearance of the Australian government's um, timeliness and so on, suffered as a result too. And, and I think it was somewhat unfair, um, if you like. But um, as I say, because that is a fact, the jurisdictions do have to request um, assistance. Um, and they don't, um, when they don't request assistance, it's not because they're being belligerent or they don't want the Commonwealth to have a role and they don't want to engage or otherwise. It's simply because they haven't identified a need that isn't being fulfilled at that time. Now, of course, if you're a community member, you will have your own views of that depending on what's sitting right in front of you versus what an agency or a, or a, or a government entity might think when it's actually coordinating a response to something. But the reality is if the need is not clearly and, and tangibly um, there in front of you, then it's very difficult to make a request for something. Um, and that's, I think, part of the problem that we've seen across the country. The capability is there. Um, if you look at defence, it's not the only resource that the Commonwealth has. They have a lot of other resources, but there's a bit of work to be done. And, and maybe the Royal Commission that's underway at the moment, um, looking specifically at that national coordination effort, will come up with some solutions to that. Um, and I know, certainly from Victoria's perspective, from my understanding so far, is Victoria, I think, is very willing to participate and ident help identify those. Yeah, I think um, Dan Andrews actually played a very, uh, very good role in that in that fire response by, uh, by I, I think in, in nuances that probably people didn't again understand, he was explaining the role between state and federal and the support that they were reaching out to and, and obviously were receiving for, for the instances of Malakuta and other sort of issues that arose during the event. So I thought he did a tremendous job at that point in time in really explaining to people what the differences were. Again, I think it was probably missed in the context of the, the real heat of the moment, but, um, but I thought he was tremendous in many ways there too. Yeah, look, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think, um, I mean, if you listen to, as I say, look, I've, I'm not the only one, but I've been around for, for nearly four decades in this space. Um, and um, I've seen a lot of emergencies and I've seen a lot of uh, responses to those and a lot of uh, different leaderships that have actually had to undertake that. 
And I can honestly say to you that I think um, if we were to look at the way in which the country responded to these events, and I mean from a from a Commonwealth government perspective as well as the states and territories, multiple states and territories who have been involved, I think um, whilst we will always find ways in which we can do things better, I've got no doubt at all, but overall um, we've done a pretty good job nationally in, in responding to this event and then having it roll into the current emergency that we see, obviously the pandemic at, at the moment and recognising that all of those communities that were affected by the fires are not even are not even uh, you know an inch of the way into their, their longer term recovery process yet, then the way in which government has now tackled the coronavirus but ensured, at least in Victoria, um, obviously because that's where I sit so I can comment on that, um, and, and has assured that um, fire-affected communities are not being forgotten and their needs are continuing to be addressed, I think is uh, is quite remarkable because we've not seen, you know, I mean, the word unprecedented gets thrown around left, right and centre. Um, I think the unprecedented bit for me is we have not seen the duration of emergency and numbers of long duration emergencies occurring in the way that these current events are unfolding at the moment. We haven't seen that before and we haven't had to try and manage it and communities haven't had to try and suffer their way through it. And that's, a, that's a, a, I guess, a real um, tip of the hat for governments at the moment. And don't forget, we will roll straight into our next fire season and coronavirus will still be here, it will not be gone. So we're, we're effectively looking at least, at least um, 18 months, uh, maybe more, in responding to and recovering from these events. Yeah, I think that's really important to note. Uh, and given your experience with uh, over the 40 years, both in Ambulance Victoria, EMA, um, and in these more recent sort of roles, how, you've seen different ways that people have learnt from these different types of events. Um, what are the best ways that you've seen people can go about applying or finding out the lessons learnt and then ideally applying or implementing them? I think the first. I think the first thing is is um, uh, you know it's funny actually. I was uh, I responded to a uh, on LinkedIn. Somebody uh, posted something on LinkedIn a couple of days ago, and they were talking about the um, they were they were questioning about the value of the adversarial inquisitorial nature of our inquiries, um, and whether we actually get any real benefit out of those because they are so adversarial. Um, and my response back to that was saying that whilst yes, certainly some of them are and. And naturally, at times, people just automatically perceive they're going to be adversarial. They're not always like that. Um, and if I use, for example, if I use our, our inquiry at the moment, I mean, I have no lesser an obligation than to make sure that I identify any areas where um, our emergency management system did not function well and then try to identify ways in which that can be done better next time around. Um, so my obligation to that is no different than a Royal Commission or a parliamentary inquiry or an independent inquiry from an ex-judge um, who's been brought in on a contract or whatever. Once I finish each piece of work, I need to be able to go back and work with those organisations again. So the first thing is, if you burn people and you hurt them and you deliberately go out to expose them in a very, very negative um, way that is not going to get any benefit or beneficial outcome from it, then obviously people do hunker down and they do get concerned about the upcoming process that they might be involved in next time. So the first thing is, if you're going to conduct anything, and it might be an inquiry at the level I'm talking about, or even within organisations, whether it's operational, you know, after action reviews or debriefs, then you've got to take a no fault, no blame to it uh, approach to, to carrying out that work. 
And when I say that, what I mean is um, nobody goes to work on any given day, at least 99.9% of us, percent of us don't go to work looking to do things badly. We go there to try and do things well for the right reason, particularly in our industry and our sector, and then to go home safely at the end of it. That's the plan. Um, so therefore, when things do go wrong or they don't go as well as they could have done, there has to be something that has allowed that to happen. And 99.9% .9 of the time, it's not the individual action of a particular person, but it's about the system. It's somewhere where the system itself has allowed a decision to be made or has allowed an action to be undertaken or otherwise. So again, um, it's not about the individual and it's about the, the system. And yes, you do need to be inquisitorial, otherwise you don't get to the bottom of, of what you're after, but you don't at the same time take an adversarial approach to that. So that's the first thing. The other thing that I guess there's a couple of others, um, when you're scoping these things out, it's, it's easy for want of being seen to do something um, or trying to appease the urgency of others. It's very easy to rush into something without thinking about it too, clear, uh, too carefully. And um, I would always say that if you're gonna go down any sort of process of review, inquiry, debrief or otherwise, you need to understand the scope of that and you need to have defined that so as you know exactly what you're looking at. Otherwise, it turns into a whopping great big talk fest. At the end of the day, you get no beneficial outcome and that's, that's of no use to anyone. So clear lines of inquiry for debriefs and for, for um, reviews and those sorts of things and clear terms of reference for inquiries um, really are critical because it gives you a framework to work within. The process obviously is, uh, is critical. Um, where possible experienced facilitators, just because I'm an inquirer, it doesn't mean to say that I'm uh, the world's best facilitator. I think I'm pretty good. But having said that, um, others would probably tell you I'm, I could do with some improvement. So if we look at this inquiry, for example, um, the community meetings that we've just facilitated, we've had 26 of those. Of those 26, 16 were face-to-face -face with communities out in fire-affected burnt areas and another 10 that were done online in the virtual environment. And 16 out of the 26 were facilitated by a professional facilitation organisation for a couple of reasons. One, to make absolutely sure that those who know how to get things out of people in the best possible way are actually doing that for you. And secondly, it allows you as the person who might be responsible for the process and delivering a report or something at the end of it, it allows you to remain engaged with the community members and truly listen to what they're saying and respond to them rather than have to try and manage all of the other noise that goes on around you. So again, uh, good facilitation is really pretty important. The other thing is make sure you've got some level of emotional support there for people too. You tell people they're going into a debrief or a review or an inquiry, they get nervous and they get worried and they get anxious. And not only that, very often they've been through the very same emergency that everyone else has been through. So therefore, they're not only going in there affected by the fact that someone's about to start throwing questions at them, but they're also going in there with a predetermined level of stress from the, the event itself. I think it's really very important to make sure that you give people the right the right level of support when you're, um, you know, when you're conducting these sorts of things. Um, Capturing the information is really critical. Obviously, if you don't capture it in the right way, that's really important. Um, you can do that through a whole range of different ways. We talked about, you know, we're talking about interviews and so on. Uh, sorry about debriefs and after action reviews now, but you can you can target your interviews with individuals. Um, you can interrogate data systems, which is really very important. And, and part of the value of being able to do that, whether they're your own or whether they're part of it for us, we, we get into the emergency service organisations data systems but part of the reason for that is a it allows us to analyze what we think is important and and disregard what we don't 
but it also means it takes a bit of pressure off those that you're talking to. If they're not expected to deliver absolutely everything you want because you can get it through another mechanism, then you should try and reduce the burden of the inquiry that you're conducting and reducing the burden is pretty important to us. Most important though out of all of that is no matter what information you get, um, if you're going to use it to make a recommendation or if you're going to use it to change a practice or otherwise, then you've got to validate that information and it's got to be evidence-based. So, um, you know, when we, when we speak to people and we interview them and they provide us with responses to things um, or they send a, a policy or a, or a process to show us what they do, we then require evidence behind that to show us where it's actually been used and, and what the outcome of the use of that was. So we don't accept it because somebody says, oh, we do this, we do that. We don't accept it. We'll say, well, that's nice. Thank you for that. So now the proof of that is, and we request that. And if we get a policy or something, we actually go out on the ground each year and we retrospectively look um, for the implementation of policy into current day events. So that's a, an idea of how we do that as well. Um, recommendations are obviously really important, but when you're making recommendations, they've got to be implementable. You can, you can say anything you like, but if it can't be implemented, then it's of no value to anybody. So therefore, the way in which you word a recommendation is really critical. And the other thing about a recommendation is um, it should be a win-win. So in other words, what you're looking to do is you're trying to find a way in which the recipient of the outcome of that recommendation being community, for example, gets a tangible community safety benefit. And if possible, the agency or government or whoever is going to have to deliver the recommendation that there is a benefit for them in it that is bigger than just recognising that they changed something. So we try and write our recommendations in a way that there is a multiple, multiple prongs of benefit that are gained from it. And the last two things I'd say very quickly before I quieten down for you, um, outcomes. Um, clearly, they have to be tangible outcomes. You can't just simply write recommendations without knowing what, what the outcomes are that you're trying to achieve. Um, and when, when you do know what those outcomes are, they've got to be measurable. And they've also, most importantly, got to be able to meet the intent of the recommendation. So a minute ago, I said, you know, anybody can write a recommendation. And that's true. I can, I can give you 20 words that will form a recommendation about something. But whether or not um, those recommendations or those words actually meet the intent that sat behind them is really important. And if I can give you a very quick example of, um, of where um, I've tried to or had to make sure that that was the case. Um, the current government um, asked me a couple of years ago to look at the uh, one of the recommendations that arose from the 2009 Bushfires Royal Commission, which was the one that revolved around the um, hectare-based burning targets for fuel reduction and a 5% rolling target each year. Um, and I was asked at the time whether I would, or not asked whether I would, I was asked to review that recommendation to see whether or not um, there was another way potentially to get the same sort of outcome um, rather than looking at the 5% target. And, and the reasons for being asked to do that were that in the, uh, the years leading up to me being asked that and between the recommendation being made by the Royal Commission, um, the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning, for all of their best endeavours, had never been able to reach the 5% target. There were so many mitigating factors and so many variables throughout the year that impacted on their capacity to burn that they just never, ever achieved the 5%. Um, and what was happening was that um, there were areas of the state that were being burnt um, simply to allow departments to be able to achieve a target that had been prescribed to them that if they hadn't they were likely to be penalized for. Now that's not to the benefit of anybody clearly the community doesn't get a safety benefit out of that if you're burning at the Mallee or the Wimmera where there's no there's no asset or no no community value being protected 
Um, and secondly, the, um, the state gets no value out of it in that it's expending money uh, and a lot of effort to do that burning to meet a target that's not achieving any safety outcomes. So that was the reason for being asked to do it. We had a really good look at it over a period of about eight and a half months, called for public submissions. And as you can imagine, I can tell you now, when it comes to fuel reduction burning, there are only two camps in this world. There's a scorched earth camp on one side that say if you burn east to west of the state, then there is no risk. So that's what you should do. And then there are others who say, well, if you burn one leaf, then that has a knock on effect that can't necessarily be anticipated on the environment and on biodiversity. So therefore, you know, you shouldn't be burning. And, and we were trying to find something somewhere in the middle, which we think we came up with. And, and that was to move away from a hectare based target and move to what's called a risk reduction target. And I won't get into the details of that. People can go and have a look at it themselves. But, but it was a very, very significant policy change for government to consider. Now, before I made that recommendation, whilst it sounds very simple, um, one thing I was extremely concerned about was that um, the Royal Commission had arrived at their recommendation through using very similar processes to me and analysing a lot of evidence and a lot of data and, and the expertise of a lot of experts, but some years before. And I was concerned that by making the recommendation that we did, um, that if I didn't fully understand the intent of the Royal Commission's original recommendation, um, then I may be effectively changing the intent and not delivering on that. And the one thing we knew was that the Royal Commission's intent was always a pure of heart valid one. So I went and spent um, a full day with Commissioner Teague, Bernie Teague, um, who had chaired the Royal Commission and walked in through my thinking and the, the evidence around that and, and the analysis of why we were moving to where we were and then got him to spend as much time as he needed to make sure I fully understood the intent of that recommendation. Once I'd satisfied myself that I did, we then went away and then thought about how we word our recommendation to get a different delivery mechanism but delivering on the right intent, and we were able to do that. So long-winded, I know, but it's an example of what you have to do to make sure that you get it right. With that in mind, what do you think is the most important part of your role specifically, but then more generally, these different types of recommendations and how and how they are found and, uh, and crafted, I suppose? Well, I guess um, I think, and I've said this before, I've been asked, you know, when I, I described the three, the three functions that my office has, um, to you earlier, and I have been asked when I'm out speaking at various places on a couple of occasions about is there is there a more important part of what I do? And and one person even said to me, if the government said to you, okay, your uh, your budget's being slashed by a third, so you can only do one of the three things that you currently do now, which one would you maintain, and which ones would you would you drop off? Um, in a very careful way, because I don't like to upset my staff who work in various aspects of our business, because ultimately they are all critical. But if you were forced into making a decision about one thing that probably gives the biggest bang for buck to our community, I would say it's the monitoring, uh, the implementation monitoring of recommendations. There are a lot of people that are well-educated um, and have a lot of experience in our sector and in emergencies and in security events, et cetera, who can go out and very confidently conduct inquiries and, and reviews and they can make recommendations. So you don't need just a person, you know, or my office to be able to do that. But where it gets difficult is having the right people with the right backgrounds and the right skills to be able to monitor the implementation of those recommendations once they've been accepted, right the way through to their acquittal to make sure that that intent that I talked about before has actually been delivered. So I think um, out of all of that, if you can't guarantee 
important too that you've got a capacity to properly monitor the implementation of your recommendations, then again, you'll end up in a circumstance where, where um, you have large scale events again occurring where the same issues that you faced in the past um, continue to be revealed. Um, and if I think back, going back even further than uh, much, much further than 2009, um, somebody asked me at a presentation once, why did I think we ended up where we did in 2009 with Black Saturday with the situation that arose there, considering we'd gone through, you know, considering we had all these processes in place and why couldn't the state respond to it? And if you take out of the, if you take out of the equation the very, um, the very violent nature of that um, that few hours uh, on the day when the wind changed and the, um, and the massive front went through the areas that it did and the fact that that was heavy, more heavily populated than others that we've seen in the past. Um, something else that sat behind that to some extent um, was the fact that in 1983 we had Ash Wednesday. Um, and if you think about it, right back then in Victoria, we didn't have any emergency management legislation. We didn't have anything like the processes we have now. Um, and as a result of that fire, um, all of what was up until 2009 was effectively created in that legislation and in the policies and the processes that ensued from Ash Wednesday. The problem that we got into to some extent um, is that um, we then sat back and I think as a, as a state and as a community, we assumed that now that we had all those things in place, um, and that because they'd been developed as a result of such a terrible event as Ash Wednesday, that we were in a great place and everything was fine. I don't think we were well, um, I don't think we'd done a good enough job over the ensuing years leading up to 2009 of then continuing to test our assumptions um, from which all of those policies and processes and, and arrangements have been put in place. So effectively, to some extent, there were elements of our practice in 2009 that were effectively um, in the lead up were effectively as if we were responding to a 1983 Ash Wednesday event. Again, we'd be using, you know, similar principles, similar arrangements, similar structures, et cetera, et cetera. And whilst we do a lot of after action reviewing, we do a lot of testing, we do a lot of analysis of a lot of things, we didn't test our assumptions and a lot changes. Demography changed, geography, um, there are ge geographical impacts, environmental impacts are huge, climate has changed, and therefore we just were not, I think, um, anywhere near in the place that we could have been had we been able to continue to um, analyse things along the way. So again, if you look at what Victoria's put in place and, um, and also Queensland now, again, part of the role of our office is to continue year in, year out to be testing these assumptions to try and make sure that as each event occurs where we know we will, we will still have bad impacts, but on each occasion, hopefully the impact might be slightly less and our ability to actually understand why it occurred and then do something that might lessen the impact of it further down the track is, is potentially there. Where do they generally go wrong then, Tony? So we've spoken about those three big ones, um, Ash Wednesday, Black Saturday, and then the more recent ones, but where, where are you finding as the common themes about where things go wrong uh, from these or other events? Uh, look, I think um, I've, I've obviously I'm not going to talk about the current inquiry because um, you know the the recommendations of that have not yet been presented to government. In fact, we haven't actually we haven't identified them all yet. So obviously, there's still uh, some way to go there. But if you look more broadly, there are there tend to be some some um, some things that reasonably regularly raise their head. Communication is always there and it's always up at the front end and it takes many, many forms. Um, there's communication with communities leading up to events um, and their ability to be prepared and understand the environment that they're in. 
um, that's that's always uh, always raises its head and for all of the work that um, gets done year in year out by agencies and the communities themselves there is always some degree of perceived shortcoming in that space but again that's often contributed to as I said by some of the things I just talked about a, mi a minute ago you know the environment changes um, our demography changes if you look at East Gippsland at the moment, for example, there are significantly greater numbers of tree change um, people and families down in those areas that are in uh, what I affectionately call East Gippsland at times the Disneyland of disasters. Um, you know, it has it seems to suffer so much um, down there, um, and particularly from a natural hazard perspective. And yet you've got people moving down there on a very regular basis and a more frequent basis now who are moving into environments where they maybe don't fully understand the environment that they're in. So therefore their level of risk awareness is, is somewhat fraught. So that's, that's one of the areas. Uh, communication from the perspective of information sharing during events is always, always raises its head. And again, that comes down to a whole range of things. It's technology, it's about individuals' willingness, it's about legislative or perceived legislative blockers. There's a whole range of things there that come into it. And then there's communication after the event about how can things be done better and what is it that we need you to do now that things are calm and you're not under threat what are the sorts of things that you and we, as in community and government and agencies, can all do better together that might present put us into a slightly better place next time around? So, communication always raises its head. Um, then, really, after that, it's uh, you know there's things about uh, interoperability or is always a big one, whether that's about equipment that's used on the ground in responding to events or if um, you know common ones now. And then you know the National uh, Bushfire Royal Commission is obviously looking at, and we will look at as well as part of our inquiry into um, technology and uh, app-based you know uh, sorry apps and those sorts of things, uh, of which there are quite quite a number of them. Um, each jurisdiction uses their own app for different purposes. They don't talk to each other, so therefore there's a there's a whole range of issues that fall into the IT space um, and and interoperability space. And there are there are many others, but there's, there's you know there's there's quite a number of themes that regularly come up. The degree to which they come up, of course, is different each time, but you can almost guarantee that they will be there. That was probably an interesting one. Is I think during during the most recent campaign, there was um, a fire campaign. Sorry to. To be clear, there was uh, I was working with a client that that runs logistics and supply chain across the whole country. So um, at one stage, when we we're looking at data points for each of the states, were all impacted by fires simultaneously. Aside from really Northern Territory, um, all of them had been impacted in some way, shape, or form throughout that. We had to go to about five or six different data sources for each of those jurisdictions. Aside from Victoria, actually. Um, where you could go to one application which showed you the the an overlay of roads plus incidents plus fires plus warnings and alert notifications. Now, if I remember back to your time at EMA there, Tony, I think that was one of your key recommendations or one of the key things that you're advocating on behalf of as a, a common operating picture across all the states. Is that an opportunity that we've missed over time, do you think? Um, I think, yeah, certainly nationally, absolutely nationally we have. And I mean, there's a whole range of, of things that come into it, which I'm sort of, I'll, I'll mention briefly in a second, I guess. But um, from Victoria's perspective, um, again, and look, you know, I'm always, I'm not sure how widely, um, you know, people will listen to this, but I'm always careful not to, to try to not to be seen to be saying how good are we. Um, you know, the reality is much of what we have in place now in Victoria, I think is is very good and it's very effective, which includes, 
um, you know, the common operating platform that um, Emergency Management Victoria have implemented for information sharing and so on, uh, the Vic Emergency app and all those sorts of things, which is one you're referring to there at the moment, um, which engages also with others like um, Department of Transport Roads and, and others. Um, they're all terrific innovations and they all absolutely um, do two things. One, they provide, um, they, they facilitate um, the potential for better outcomes for communities who can access them and see what's there and make and then provide provides them with an opportunity to make decisions based on good information. So that's that's obviously a good outcome. And it also means that the agencies and government itself is in a better position to be able to re respond to things more appropriately because it's got evidence in front of it of what's of what's actually happening. So that's terrific. But don't forget, um, I've said uh, before many a time, you know, that 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 is all born on the back of of terrible tragedy. Um, Back to 2009, 173 people's lives were lost. And had we not, as a state, um, gone down a pathway and had governments not gone down a pathway to make sure that the sorts of things that we're talking about now that we think have improved, at least at this state's level, were in place, then we would be absolutely negligent. Um, so, so from Victoria's perspective, I think yes, we're in a we're in a far, far better place than we've ever been. Each jurisdiction would would have their own view on that. Some are better than others. There's no doubt about that. But from a national perspective, we haven't gone very far at all. Um, we have, you know, people. You've got to be careful. Though, having said that, I, you know, I've got to put a bit of a caveat around. I mean, you can't make everything consistent. You know, consistent nationally. That's just the reality of life. So whilst interoperability of equipment and training and, and those sorts of things is desirable, um, you will get somewhere towards that, but I'm not sure that you will get absolutely towards it at the end because there are so many variables that come into play. Um, the same with apps. I think there are, there are lots of ways in which you can ensure that technology is better engaged. It may not be that you end up with the same app, but if you end up with apps that can actually communicate with each other and can display information that is relatively consistent, then at least you're in a far better place than you were. So, so I think at the state level, yes, we're much better off. Nationally, we've still got a fair bit of work to do. And again, if you look at the terms of reference of the Royal Commission, you'll see that that's exactly exactly where they're headed, is trying to find ways in which that could be done better. And, and I know for a fact that um, Victoria will, will is, as well as will be, but is a very willing participant in in um, trying to engage in those areas where we all think there's a there's a bigger picture benefit. Shifting fire a little bit now for all, switching sorry excuse the pun switching over from from the fires to the the COVID uh, emergency that we've been dealing with now. Um, what do you think are going to be the the probably the big lessons that we're we're going to learn out of this type of event? Um, well, I think one of them is, um, I think community as a whole has now got a taste of what does an emergency mean to them. Um, we, I think, depending on where you are um, in our state, at least, and it's no different anywhere else, but, um, you know, you, you will be exposed to emergencies more frequently than in some other areas. We have very transient populations now, so... If you think about the city of Melbourne and the inner suburbs of Melbourne, for example, I think people's awareness um, leading up to coronavirus of emergencies and government systems and the way in which governments and agencies respond and want to communicate and need to engage with communities and so on, I think that would have been very different. It would have been well, reasonably well understood in the more uh, rural areas of Victoria because they are exposed to this more frequently, not coronavirus obviously, but to, to hazards and, and those hazards being recognised more frequently. 
but our transient communities in and around the inner suburbs and in the city uh, itself who are in and out and moving around all over the place don't engage to any great extent in that sort of activity which we really don't see a lot of touch wood, a large scale emergencies per se in the city area and the inner suburbs areas. We get, you know, we get the odd West Footscray and uh, fire and um, coot island and those sorts of things, but but not to the extent that we see natural hazards occurring outside of the urban area. So I think there's a bit of a, um, up until now, there's probably been a bit of a lack of understanding in a generally large area of our population of what it's like to go through an emergency a protracted emergency and something where you are going to be engaged with and going to need to engage with government agencies and organisations and others. I think something that will come out of this is that we will have a far greater understanding across our community now of what that means. Um, the issue then for us is how do you capitalise on that? Because if you go back to the communication points that I was making before and I said, you know, there are different levels of understanding that create different capacities to communicate or be communicated with, then I think this one creates an opportunity for us to do a significant amount of work to say, let's now use the benefit of everybody having been through this and not waste it to get a better uptake and a better understanding of what does it mean to me, if you like, with an inverted commas, for every individual and every family. That's that's one of the, the things that we'll learn. The other thing that uh, I think we'll learn out of this is that um, nobody's immune. Um, you know, I, I just, it's always easy um, to sit back on the TV um, and look at things and say how terrible that is and watch terrible things going on around you. But I think the coronavirus has, has allowed us to understand that we are actually not immune to what goes on. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are. Um, it's, it's like the tax man. There's every opportunity is going to come and get you um, and it'll know who you are and you will suffer in the same way as everybody else does. So that's, that's another important learning, I think. Um, really, the only opportunity we've had before, you know, we've had some public health emergencies before. The closest, I think, for us um, in modern times, at least for Melbourne, was obviously the, the terrible um, thunderstorm asthma event of, of 2016, where, where 10 Victorians lost their lives. Um, and, you know, and whilst that was very short in its, um, in its time frame, it was a, an emergency that occurred over a very large area. Um, affecting people that had never been affected before, who didn't understand what was happening. It, it impacted on the agencies to the extent that because they couldn't see what was causing it, they didn't know what they were responding to. It has a massive impact on your systems or your availability, sorry, the capacity of your systems to respond. So again, I think, um, you know, this, this coronavirus has, has provided a lot of opportunity for us to get a much better understanding of, of what does emergency and hazard mean, what are the impacts of it potentially, and then what does resilience maybe look like um, a little better towards the end of this. Do you think that we've been too focused over the journey on uh, specific hazard types, so fire, flood, you know, cyclone? They're obvious. They're the obvious ones. We we deal with seasons of those. Um, do you think that that's been sometimes now at the expense of the wider uh, the wider threats out there? Yeah. Yeah, look, I do, but I don't. I don't say that in a critical way, though. I think um, you know, and I mean, I'm, 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 as I say, I've been, I've been in a lot of other roles too, where I've had different paths to play in these events. So, so I am not immune to it, um, and therefore it's not a, a criticism. But I think it's just a genuine, it's a genuine fact that we have, um, because we are exposed to natural hazards year in year out. We know we're going to get big fires every year somewhere. We know we're going to get significant floods somewhere. And they're the types of events that people keep getting um, getting uh, affected by. So therefore, it's natural that your planning and your response to those sorts of events is is the one that you put your your best effort into. 
but I think the problem is that that we haven't um, we haven't necessarily um, thought about how to respond to the other hazards. It's not that we haven't known that they're there. And, you know, for example, pandemic now. I know that pandemic has been well considered nationally and I know it's been well considered at the state level for many, 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 many years. And it's acknowledged, it was always acknowledged that it could happen. Um, however, because of the infrequency of it, acknowledging that it could happen and doing some early work on it and having a plan or two in place is, is really valuable, but they're not having the time or the resources or the ability to then exercise those and to continue to go back and test those assumptions that I was talking about before because you're so tied up in dealing with the what is happening now stuff. Um, certainly does increase your risk in some of those less traditional areas. So I think we've been somewhat underprepared, but it's also natural and, and I clearly understand why that's the case. And again, if you're looking for another benefit from coronavirus, I would be staggered if when we come out of this, um, pandemic doesn't then continue to be as important a consideration for continual review and assessment as any of our natural hazards are. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's been commentary about the emergency exercise and, and that have and haven't been performed over the years. Um, there's been also some great commentary recently about Japan's sort of work that they do in these sort of areas. So they do a national exercise day. Could you ever foresee something like that happening in Australia? Again, given your recent role, your recent role and also previous roles, could you ever perceive like a national um, exercise day where we, we are planning for and practicing all the different interagency responses as part of a national emergency? Uh, yeah, absolutely, I could. And I think, um, look, it's, and it's not that they haven't happened before. It's it's more about the, I guess it's more about the frequency of them um, and also then what you do with, with the findings of those at the end of them. Uh, you know, I, I, again, think back to, I think now, I'm, I'm happy to be corrected, but I think it was 2008 where we had the um, the last pandemic um, uh, threat that was going on at the time. And I was in the Commonwealth at the time, and I remember going through working as part of the Commonwealth coordination response with the jurisdictions on preparedness for that. Um, and there were exercises around that at that time and following that. And I know Victoria also had exercises and has had exercises in recent years as well. But but um, it's, it's more about whether they are done, when you're looking at a hazard, it is not just going to affect you. If Victoria's having exercises for pandemic, that's fine. But if it's not possible then, for that Victorian response and Victorian activity to be tested against the national response, then of course the the potential risk that you have there is that, you know, that your perception of what you think is going to happen is actually not what happens on the day. So, so I absolutely think we will see far more testing and exercising going on. And um, and I know even in this state, as well, it's not to do with the pandemic, but I know just prior to interestingly, um, and at the um, uh, at the uh, caused by the Emergency Management Commissioner Andrew Crisp, the Powelltown exercise, um, which was a, an actual physical evacuation exercise of Powelltown, the town, um, in partnership with police and emergency service organisations, um, in anticipation of a, a potential very nasty bushfire event, we haven't seen an exercise like that with communities on that scale conducted in many, many a year. Um, we had that one, and then, of course, what did we have? We had the major fires immediately after it, and many of those things were tested again following the exercise. But what it said to me was that even looking at that one, 
um, there is a huge investment in time, in money and in people to conduct those exercises. And it said to me that Victoria, at least for that particular hazard, saw that there was a great risk and that there was great value in conducting exercises of that scale. And it wouldn't surprise me if we now see in the coronavirus sense and the pandemic sense and some of maybe some of the more non-traditional emergency sense, swine flu and, and the other things that are out there that will have just as big an economic impact on our country, I think we'll see we'll see more more frequent and larger scale exercises. Last few questions, Tony, and it's been a real insight today, so thank you. But um, on the leadership side, what, what's sort of been some of the great examples that you've seen out there? Um, doesn't have to necessarily be around the recent event, but what's some of the sort of great examples that you've seen over your time uh, with ambulance, air force, or in the emergency management space around the leadership in a crisis? Yeah, I think there's look, I think there's a few examples of them, and uh, and they and they fall across a whole range of uh, disciplines. I think Colin Powell's a great example. You know, many people use Colin Powell as a as an example of leadership through the Gulf War uh, crisis, and having a look at the um, at a some of the some of the practices that he that he actually had, but not only that, the um, listening to him more importantly um, after the event when he was out and actually able to speak more publicly about the, the the way in which he was thinking and the way in which he used advice and the types of principles that he used, and uh, I think there's a there's a great example in a in an event such as a large scale war like that um, being fought in a in a you know in a technologically different way than we'd seen before where potentially um, communities find it harder to anticipate what the impact on them might be from a less conventional type of war, but also still see large numbers of their countrymen being killed in war. I think that was a great example of leadership. Um, going back in Victoria, um, 1997, we had the, um, the Longford gas explosion where we had the, uh, uh, the great period of time without without any hot water in the state um, and any gas supply in the state that created a massive amount of problems. And Jeff Kennett at the time, and now I just want to say right up front, I have no political allegiance to anybody. Um, whoever Whoever's going to give me the best outcome as a community member, I'll vote for. So sort of put that on the agenda, but uh, on the record rather. But having said that, um, Jeff Kennett's leadership, I think, and his government's leadership throughout that Longford crisis was uh, was exemplary. And, and in fact, in many ways, it, it replicated um, well, not replicated, but it, it preceded some of what we saw later on in time um, in some other events. If I then go to um, to the US, um, I think uh, Rudy Giuliani through 9-11 was a, was a great example. Now, it's a bit of a shame because um, Rudy Giuliani, this is me just speaking as a person now, not, as a, not in my, my capacity as a, the iGEM, but... But if you look at Rudy Giuliani now, he's been somewhat um, maligned, I think, with his um, his ties to the current president and being a lawyer and being seen to be doing what he does for, for nothing more than political gain, et cetera, et cetera. If you take that Rudy Giuliani out of the picture and look at what we saw throughout that period of 9-11 in New York City, um, I think you would struggle to find a better example of leadership where... Um, it wasn't just leadership about policy, it was leadership about providing communities with a level of certainty and a level of um, comfort in such a significant large-scale event where the complexities of that and also the ongoing threat was so unknown 
to be able to guide a city through that in the way that he did, I think was was quite remarkable. And I was, as it happens, I'd um, in November, sorry, October the year before, I'd actually been over in um, the US and in New York and Washington specifically, and had developed very good and long-standing friendships and relationships with some some key people over there, including the the director of the Office of Emergency Management in New York City. To the extent that when the event occurred. Um, our government in Victoria uh, a couple of months later and everything was still obviously very, very well underway in New York, asked whether or not um, I thought I had the ability to get a small team of Australians um, from government into New York City and into Washington DC to actually analyse what they were doing over there in their response to it to be able to come back and then have a look at our preparedness arrangements here. Um, And as it turned out, so I was able to contact New York City Office of Emergency Management and my counterpart over there at the time said he was very happy to uh, entertain us. So we went over there and we spent um, a bit over a month in New York City and Washington and DC and we interviewed the directors of all the OEMs and um, the mayor's chief of staff and you name it, spoke to a whole lot of them. We spent a lot of time on site at um, the World Trade Centre and at the Pentagon and then out at Staten Island where the, um, the body recovery and so on was being done. And we're able to come back and, and, and provide a fairly consolidated report for Victoria to benchmark itself against. And as a result of that, I think we got such a, a, a deeper understanding of what it takes to be a leader in a community setting to try and get um, a city and a community through that type of emergency. And if you look at the politics of that for him, um, he had he was a city mayor. Um, that was within a state that had its own governor, that was doing its thing within a country that had its own president, that was doing its own federal thing, and yet he was ultimately the face for his community, um, the largest impacted part of the US, and did an absolutely magnificent job. And I think there's still to this day, there are many practices and lessons that came out of that that people fall back to and use as benchmark good practice when we're looking at big events. With that in mind, I mean, we've, we're dealing, we're seeing now the, the interrelationship between federal and state and obviously the impacts locally for, for COVID. Um, what are some of those lessons do you think that these guys could take out of the, the New York experience and apply here now? Um, look, I think to some extent, I think to some extent, a lot of it's actually, a lot of it is actually happening. You know, I talked about the issues of communication um, and so on before and said that they will always be there. But I, I don't think for one minute, again, if you look at Victoria first, but also nationally, I don't think for one minute um, you could honestly argue that the communication from governments, plural, um, with regard to this emergency to Australian communities has been anything short of um, short of extremely effective Um I think it's been timely, it's been accurate. Um, we haven't had an overabundance of what could be perceived by some as being political rhetoric and point scoring. There's been a little bit here and there going on in the background, but that's party politics stuff. But as far as the actual communicating about the emergencies go, um, I don't think there's, there's, I don't think I've seen a better example of it in this country. So I think that is certainly being done. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, don't for one minute think that I'm saying that that's put down to the way Giuliani did what he did. But if you, if you use that example as a benchmark for what I think was good practice, at least at the city level, then in this country, I think we're doing a damn good job of it this time around. Um, the other thing is, I think we're also um, learning well from the experiences of others. Um, one thing that unfortunately at times you can get trapped into is thinking that um, and I go back to my comments earlier about Ash Wednesday versus Black Saturday um, you can at times lull yourself into a false sense of security and thinking that you've got it nailed and you know it all and therefore you'll just do what you do 
but I think we've seen great examples of um, in this country of our chief health officers and our governments working together to be able to analyse what everybody else is doing and see how to how to best improve on on what they're seeing elsewhere. That's not only from um, from better practices, but it's also from the perspective of making sure you don't go down some of those pathways that whilst on the skin of it all might look good, um, without analysing what the outcome was for them. And, and, you know, when you see the horrendous figures that we're seeing in some places around the world, I think, um, even, I, honest to God, I think even in our worst case scenario here, were people to um, go as as far as Australians might in disregarding the advice and the guidance they're given because of our culture here and, and the way we do think and operate, I, I couldn't see us ending up, even relatively speaking, in the same sort of situation that some other jurisdictions are in. So I think in many ways the country has learnt a lot from many preceding events, I'm sure, but more importantly, on a day-to-day -day basis, continues to appear to be learning from what's going on around them. That probably last question then, Tony, mm -hmm. is, is that, you know, we've, we have weathered this particular storm very well. So far. So far. Yeah. How does that then, um, how can we ensure that we maintain that vigilance uh, and, and, and not think that, you know, that, that, that we, we actually got away with something here and think that we need to be focused further on that second wave or, 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 you know, maintaining the current position. How easy is it, do you think, for people to forget what oh, we've done? That's probably the biggest challenge for, for the government now and for, for all governments, um, state and federal now, will be to maintain the level of um, awareness in communities where, in reality, you need to... The only way you can really do that is to balance um, managing... Um, allowing a level of concern to exist to the extent that people recognise that they are always going to be at risk without allowing it to get to the extent that they believe they are at so much risk that nothing's going to save them and therefore they won't listen to any advice or guidance or otherwise. So I think, um, you know, you're right. There's no doubt the uh, once the peak of this dies down and we start to um, see further reduction in restrictions and people are allowed to get back to more of the things that, that they used to be able to do prior to the pandemic. Um, normal day-to-day -day living takes over and that, that becomes your priority and, you know, we're we're not immune as individuals to everything. We have we have our own disasters occurring every day in our own family lives and our working lives that we have to deal with. So therefore the pandemic of two years ago is a, is a far gone and, and well forgotten thing in many cases and I think that's the challenge maintain a level of awareness um, where you need to maintain to some degree um, an appropriate level of concern. Otherwise, people, you can keep telling them about it and remember this, remember that, remember the other. But if they don't feel that there is a, a real risk to them, then they will forget it. That concludes episode four of series two of Crisis Talks. In my next episode, I speak with Justin Dunlop, who's the head of emergency management for Ambulance Victoria. We conducted this interview on Thank You First Responder Day, the 27th of May, 2020. We went over some of the insights that Justin was able to learn from his response to COVID-19. In particular, some of the lessons that they've learned from some of the previous events, such as Ebola, H1N1, swine flu and SARS, meant that they were able to be extremely well prepared for this particular response. It was really fascinating hearing some of the stories about how they applied those lessons in the past into the COVID-19 situation and they adapted their plans to suit the changing environment that we all saw.